This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Okay, so hello everybody and welcome uh, to today's talk, The Work of Video Games, Reflection uh, on Game Worker Organizing. Um, my name is Jamie uh, and I'm the author of uh, Marks at the Arcade. Uh, and I'm really pleased to, to introduce today uh, the two other speakers uh, or or player speakers as soon will become become apparent. Uh, Austin, who's the former chair of the Game Workers branch of the IWGB, uh, and Emma, who is the campaign lead uh, of the Code CWA uh, campaign. Um, a couple of things just to start off with. We're going to do things a little bit differently today. Um, so we're going to try and play full guys whilst reflecting on, on video game worker organizing. Um, and I just also want to say a huge thank you uh, to the Haymarket team for setting us up with uh, a somewhat complicated live stream, uh, and John for for believing that this was something we 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 could do. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to kick off. Um, you'll see how fantastically bad I am at Fall Guys, um, and we'll see some competition from from some of the other speakers. And we're going to talk through a couple of issues uh, about the history uh, of organising in the games industry, about what's happened more recently, uh, and maybe even what might happen uh, in the future. Um, so Austin, um, whenever you're ready, should we, should we get into the game? Yeah, can do. Uh, all right, let's go. And so with, with perfect timing, Fall Guys has also decided to move on to a new season today. So that's my excuse for not knowing how these levels work or, <laughs> or, or what's going to happen. My excuse is that I'm just bad. So I thought, you know, while things are loading and we're kind of starting to kick things off, um, I thought it might be nice just to start talking about how how we each got involved in in the games industry and thinking about games, just as a kind of bit of background uh, before we get into into some of the kind of media bits. Um, so Austin, you know, what was your kind of route into into the games industry, into thinking about these things? Um, so like 13 years ago or so, or actually, no, let's go 17 years ago. I went to a college in Seattle, Washington in the U S. Um, and it, uh, was basically a school dedicated to teaching how to make video games. Um, so I did that for about four years and then, uh, you know, got a, a job as a programmer at, uh, midway shortly after and um, have been in the industry for like 13 years since. So um, it's a very, very brief overview of it. But yeah. That was also me trying to distract you so I could get the jump on you in the first round. Yeah, I was like wicked not paying attention. <laughs> oh. I was like, that's really interesting, Austin, as I run straight off the platform. Yeah. Yeah, this one's a little bit challenging. Um, and how about for you, Emma? What was your route? Now that I can distract you and get the, the yeah, around it. like I need more distraction right now. But um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so 
I went to a university program as well. Um, got into the games industry. I actually come out of film primarily as my background, um, but moved into games over time. Narrative, production, QA, you know, I did the works. Um, I've always been involved with some form of like political and labor and community organizing. Um, I used to like run like uh, you know, volunteering and also coordinating like election campaign stuff. Um, you know, from a pretty, oh my God, wow, I can't focus. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've always been involved with a lot of organizing. I think I got my first like paper organizer training in like high school. Um, it's like a here for a local um, in my hometown. So it's always just enough fun to do it. You know? And then, you know, when I moved into the games industry as like my primary career focus, just felt natural. Merge those aspects my lives, I would say. Wow. Terrible. Okay. I, I didn't I didn't make it through the first round. <laughs> yeah, I super did not. <laughs> Austin, did you get through? Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. So this gives us a bit more of a chance to talk while Austin uh, shows us his, his, his full guy skills. So, I mean, I guess, you know, one of the things that, that's always, that's interested me about this is, you know, when you talk with lots of workers today at the moment, you know, there are lots of people who are trying to get organized during COVID or, you know, thinking of taking the first steps. And, you know, the conversations I always have with people, it's say, oh, well, you know, my industry is really specific or it's really different or, you know, there are challenges in my industry that mean it's harder or, or so on. And I guess, you know, from your route in, you know, what do you think is like, specific about the games industry? Or like what specific challenges do you think there were you know, I guess I'm like compared to film or compared to other places. That's a great question. Um, it's not the answer anybody really wants to hear. I don't think, but my honest opinion is, I do not think it's all that unique. Um, in that, I don't think there's some magical special thing about games that makes it either possibly hard or incredibly. Easy. Um, I think, you know, when it comes to organizing. It's first and foremost a social like activity, right? You're like building relationships, you're building trust, you're like building community. Right? That's the primary thing. And that's all very human centric. And it kinda doesn't matter whether you're off shop, full line, back or like call or soft. It's kinda always the same anxieties, the same fears, the same hopes, the same dreams, never about something that's kind of universal in that way. Um, like I said, I think there are some unique ones. Like, there's like such a wide diversity of disciplines in the games industry, and people wear so many hats. Video or like programmers who also focus in on pre art, whatever. Right? It's not very mm -hmm. and I think that is really interesting. And I think that really um, insists on an industrial union model approach, where um, all the different disciplines are one together. If you work together, you should be in the union together, not divvied up into 12 different hyper-specialized random little craft unions. So I think that's one thing worth noting. But um, you know, in general, like I tend not to like let people off the hook with the notion that organizing a game is like some extremely special, difficult, unique thing. It's just a challenge and new to the industry. Yeah, I kind of wonder a bit about that connection because, you know, there had been industrial action 
in the games industry preceding what's happened in the last couple of years mm-hmm. you know, with voice actors for example coming from different industries of whether that kind of mixture of different kinds of work kind of helps with people having had you know experience in the film industry or elsewhere you know it's oh, not like totally. games is a, a, a isolated thing that you know people have never done anything else you know no, I think you're totally right. Like there's like little seeds from other pockets of organizing that I do think have really helped. Um, I think sag is definitely correct. There's a fair bit of like animators um, who have had prior experience, you know, editors, things like that. Um, writers, uh, I would also say like, um, there's, there's actually quite a few now that I'm thinking about it. But yeah, there's like a fair number of disciplines that have had experience elsewhere. I'd also argue like the games press has become increasingly unionized over the past like five to six years. And that has really resulted, I think, in a remarkable shift towards more and more real professional coverage of the industry, not just, wow, this new game's out. Let's all, you know, obsess over whatever the latest EA thing is. But instead, like, I mean, get that too. And that's great. I like reading that also. But, um, you know, we also tend to get more deep dives into the back end of what the industry really looks like, what it's like to look, like live and work in it, you know, what are kind of the guts of the industry, right? Which I think is really interesting stuff. And I think that allows the audience, the industry, and, you know, the press to kind of engage deeper and deeper actual substantive coverage of the industry. And that, I think, also helps build, like, a general cultural knowledge that's really helpful for workers. Yeah, I mean, I think the games industry press thing is one of those those things that like, if you didn't know about it, you would have just thought, oh, the, they got loads of great coverage initially. And then when you dig into it, as you say, it's like, you know, if people yeah. are unionizing in their own publication. They're obviously going to be more union friendly in the coverage they do, which was a, yeah, a kind of nice additional benefit, I guess. I would actually tweak that in that, okay. you know, the vast majority of media under, you know, capitalism are controlled by major, like millionaires, billionaires, corporations, right? I mean, Washington Post, Ultimately, it's owned by Jeff Bezos. And like you can claim editorial you know, neutrality and stuff, but we all know the reality of the situation. They have advertising things to hit. Unionization, I don't think necessarily makes it more pro-union directly. I actually think unionized um, journalism allows for more editorial independence because they have power to push back against that corporate influence. And that just defaults to being more hospitable <laughs> to pro-worker sentiments, I think. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's a, you know, a unionized press is much freer to say things that might, you know, wrangle with people. I guess also Mm -hmm. a few of them had, you know, it's not like they just unionized, like a few of them had campaigns. They, you know, they were like involved in organizing themselves, which I'm sure helps to write about organizing when you, (laughs) you know, you've you've done it and you, you know, you've been kind of a part of it. Um, So we're going to try and, is this our second try now um, to see how we get on? Austin, oh, no, I'm, I'm still going. I'm still oh, going. Uh, okay. You're right. You're I still was, in I it. was the very last person to qualify on that one. <laughs> but hey, you made it. You know, that's what that's what counts, Austin. Barely. Barely. Oh, no, this is a meritocracy. <laughs> yeah. If you don't win it, I just want you to know that you're worthless and you shouldn't be able to get paid anything. Wow, that's harsh, Emma. It's not worth it on the market of experiences and ideas here. That's, uh, that, that, all right. <laughs> Good to know. I'm so boring. <laughs> oh, no.
I mean, I was thinking before we started playing, you know, that we've got to make some kind of grand philosophical kind of claim about playing full guys and how it, you know, it represents modern capitalism. Um, I, I haven't quite got to it yet. I feel like by the end of playing, we'll 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 have the like late capitalism as full guy, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's a little too in my face, I think, right? You've got like a hundred workers all thrown into this chaotic system that's totally horseshit and arbitrary. And um, a couple left ones. Yeah, I mean, it's unrealistic, eh? There's like, there are, there are worker winners in this game, so, you know. Right. That is, that is interesting. Normally, just all hundred kind of get fucked, right? (laughs) (laughs) With Bezos standing right at the front by the finish line already. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's like DLC you can buy and just like teleports you to the end. And it's like, I, I don't know, man. I put the effort in and I bought the DLC. Wait, which one which one of these characters is you? I want to watch you. I've already finished. Oh, you're finished. Okay. Yeah, so now we're just waiting for one more person. I, I feel like this is a damning indictment of me just as a critic and not as somebody who <laughs> you know can can write about about games but can't can't get through to the fourth round like like Austin can. I will say this is the best I've ever done. So <laughs> this is very very atypical. So you're qualified for this next one too, right? Yeah. What the hell? Okay. Yeah. Am I allowed to curse? I just realized I have no idea. Is that fine? Okay. So maybe we'll have to, we'll see if we can distract Austin a little bit, but I also, I've never seen this far in the game because I can get through like one round or two. So I'm a little bit kind of fascinated about where, where you're going to get to Austin. Um, but so Emma, you're saying that you had had experience organizing elsewhere and then brought it into the games industry. Yeah, that's right. Um, so what do you think, like in the US context, like why did it happen I mean, I know these these kind of counterfactuals sometimes, but like, why do you think the organizing happened when it did and the way it did? You know, how did you get involved? What do you think was kind of happening at the time, I guess? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I think part of it will always be like hunting for a perfect answer, which doesn't really exist, even though like they'll be wrong, love analyzing these material conditions. Um, but uh, honestly, I think it was just a real tipping point. Like, I think the press becoming increasingly, you know, industry focused, um, you know, SAG after having a strike just like a year or so, or a year or so, maybe a year and a half uh, before Game Workers Night was founded. And and then I think it was really just like a capping it. Oh, wow, I got no point. Um, <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> yikes. 15. Pathetic. Um, oh, and like, I think just something that just sparked that tinder that was already there and a fair bit of fun on it was just like notion of some previous like VP executive studio that failed because she broke into the ground posting a pros and cons of unions talk at GDC and it's just like the hell on like <laughs> it's just like and the, enough of us who gave a shit about those things and was actually paying attention to those things were like okay this is terrible we should actually have opinions on this and we should get some people in that room and then there was so much energy that actually we were like, because I mean, literally, we like drug like, should show someone in the right? Um, and by the time we start reaching out, like, the first day, like, I want this, like, big, stuff. 
Yeah, losing losing the audio a little bit. Okay. And can you ready up when you get the chance? Let's do two things at once. <laughs> and I guess just while we're getting that sorted, it might be worth just for people. Not everyone, I think, will know what GDC is. Um, yeah. Because yeah, I can describe that if you want. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. So GDC's um, the Game Developers Conference, which is kind of the biggest game development related conference uh, every year, um, aside from this one uh, due to COVID stuff. But um, usually there's 10, 15,000 people that show up in San Francisco um, for for a week or so and just talk about um, game development from pretty much every aspect. Uh, and oftentimes it's a place too where people can meet up and, and see each other because we're spread across the globe so much. Um, so it's kind of like a, a unique focal point for the entire industry. Which I guess when you say it like that, it sounds like a great place to, to start kind of an organizing effort. But I mean, I guess there's also, you know, as someone who has to go to conferences from time to time, they're not always it wouldn't strike me as necessarily the a place to do some of those things. So it's a bit kind of, I guess, yeah, it gave a focus point to people perhaps. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you wanted to, to, to carry on that thought, Emma, I'm not trying to distract you from this one. Oh, are you sure? Because you keep targeting me oh. every time we start. <laughs> I think, I think Austin's paid you off or something. <laughs> oh my Lord. It's, it's not a like us, UK, uh, divide, you know. <laughs> well, I've um, got I've got allegiances on both sides, so that's right. true, Austin. Uh, all right, well, I'm going to distract you, Austin. Now, um, sure. so what? How did you get into all of this? Into oh. yeah, yeah. Basically, I saw what was happening at GDC, and I was in London, so I wasn't actually at GDC. Um, and uh, saw like all the news reports and everything like that, and uh, basically followed the Game Marcos Unite account on Twitter, signed up for all the emails and stuff like that. Um, because I've had some, you know, some of the typical experiences in the games industry with like excessive crunch and um, bad treatment by employers and all that. So I was pretty keen to try something new, and um, and then the uh, UK chapter of it came out and they had a meeting in London in August of 2018. And so I went to that, which was uh, one of the bigger meetings, the the first ones, and uh, just started getting more and more involved after that uh, and eventually became chair much later on. And it might also be worth just explaining what crunch is for some people. Yeah. Um, okay. It doesn't sound as horrible as it actually is in lots of ways. Yeah, it's kind of a nefarious term because it sounds cutesy. Mm. Um, but uh, what it is, is basically excessive overtime, which is oftentimes unpaid. So uh, yeah. overtime upwards of 60 or 80 hours a week. Uh, and in some, time, in some cases, it can be like 100, 110 hours a week or something like that, which basically means you are uh, working, you know, 14, 16 hours a day, uh, you go home, you sleep a little, and then you go straight back to work. So it, it comes with a, a lot of pretty serious issues um, 
you know, some health issues, some both physical and psychological. Uh, and oftentimes this can go on for months um, or sometimes years even. Also worth noting that I think it really impacts the quality of the game too. I don't <laughs> think like I was a former production manager and like, I don't know, like just shoving more crap into a, a small period of time. does not necessarily mean you get a good big quantity of, content usually it's just like people are dead and are just trying to slam jam it before it's done right that's not gonna make a quality game so it's like kind of bad for players bad for the company bad for workers in my opinion. so so why do you think it happens oh because it's just like really basic short-term return on investment that's literally it it's not good for the long-term health of the company because you get brain drained and stuff because people burn out and don't do good work and then yeah i mean switch um i'm gonna like cover my other screen um yeah i mean you know in the long term it's gonna make a less stable healthy workforce it's gonna be worse and worse games in the long term you're gonna have less season serious people who are gonna stay there because at some point they just want it whatever um and yeah so that that's a long-term problem though like when short term you know on studio uh, project managers are really focused on just like we gotta get this out of the door. We have to hit this milestone by this deadline because the publishers arbitrarily said blah blah blah, uh, or we just arbitrarily said blah, blah, blah to the publisher, um, and that's it. It, um, it is just very. Yeah, and I guess you know it's a kind of very traditional workplace issue in lots of ways. You know, like getting people to work without paying them for their all their time. Um, yeah. And you know, if you're getting someone to work 100 hours a week versus their 45 or whatever they should be working, you know, you're getting double double time for the same yeah. wage. Although, as you say, probably, you know, that extra chunk of time might not actually be adding that much to the game. Hey. Yeah. But, I, I think there's a sense of of actually like toxic toxic masculinity that goes along with it too. The sense of like, if I just push through and push harder, then I can get this done. Even though there's actually been like tons of studies on, on, uh, overtime. And it basically amounts to like, you are actually like less effective after two weeks of, of continuous overtime than you are. If you had just like done, you know, the, the normal hours um, for that extended period. So it's actually like, uh, there's studies saying that it like doesn't work and the industry as a whole knows this, but it still does it anyway, which is pretty ridiculous. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, um, you know, that's one of the things that I found so kind of, uh, such a clear cut kind of thing that people could organize around of, you know, the effects, as you say, it then has a broader effect on the industry too of, you know, not everyone can work those kind of long hours, it's harder to have other responsibilities and so on. So it shapes the workforce also in, in kind of particular ways, I guess. Um, and of course, you know, it's been in the news quite a bit more recently um, with uh, lots of people reporting on it, like we were talking about earlier, Emma, you know, CD Project Red hasn't had... Uh, favorable press coverage around crunch in the last couple of weeks um, to say the least yeah. which is fair i have a friend in cd project red who you know when they for when the company first announced like oh we're definitely not going to crunch 
he just started walking around telling everyone like that's obviously horseshit watch two months from now when we're really loaded or whatever they're going to be pushing us to do it one way or another. Um, and here you go. <laughs> it's like these companies, they really do operate like clockwork, which in some ways makes organizing so much easier because you can really just call their shots because it's really easy to tell, like, what is the greediest, most money grubbing way to go about this? OK, let's plan for that. Right. And nine yep. times out of ten, it's perfectly exactly what is going to happen. Yeah. So. <sighs> It's also yep. too like I would say, don't pay attention to what they say. Pay attention to what they do. Yes. And and like, kind of like Emma says, like it, it's clockwork. And you know they they can say one thing like, oh, we've changed. We're we're not going to do it anymore. Or you know we're we're going to give whatever uh, to the the workers. But like you know the the proof is in the pudding. I don't know where that phrase comes from, but yeah, like it, it really matters more what they actually do than what they say. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, particularly now some of those issues have become ones that are talked about much more widely of the fact they said that they wouldn't do crunch is a kind of, you know, at least then means you have a kind of flashpoint where when they then do it, you can kind of turn that back around. Yeah, um, and that is productive in that way. Yeah. Like, even though ultimately words don't matter, but it is, it is good shifting kind of the mental state. And the companies think, oh, we need to advertise that we're not doing crunch and we're not driving our workers into pits of despair. That way, we'll sell more, right? Um, it's at least something, but I don't I don't think just you know marketing pressure is the right way to go about it. Obviously, the thing we need is like us, the workers, to actually have agency and power in our, over our own lives. Not just being thankful when the parents decide to let us not burn out and crunch. Yeah. And so we I have lost one... that one. Oh, no. Oh, God, Did, that means uh... the pressure to play is back again. Um, we've had <laughs> yeah, one... I was getting we've really had... comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> we've had one question come in uh, that's actually directly related to this. So I think um, it's worth worth us thinking about someone saying do we think it's possible to make big modern games without crunch or does the yeah. format of these massive 60 no. hour plus open world games require it in some way no not at all i mean i think it's absolutely silly because there are just thousands upon thousands of people who make these games and you could just have 1.5 percent more people right just like hire more people and lord knows these games make enough revenue like we're talking about games that bring in multi-million dollar revenue and there's massive profits that go directly to you know really fun ceos who definitely do a lot of work and are really valuable in their companies and like no we could just pay people more we could hire more folks end of story yeah i think that that Anytime a company crunches, it's basically a production failure. Either they could, um, you know, hire more people or cut scope, essentially like do less. Or um, oftentimes it's it's even just like uh, there's there's kind of like a, a certain type of perfectionism that's within the games industry as well, which is like, oh, this has to be perfect, and and one person constantly changes their mind, and so like just being okay with going a singular direction and not constantly changing your mind. Like there's, there's all kinds of ways to, to like help 
mitigate uh, production issues. And the games industry barely does any of them a lot of the times. And so that's why things go out of scope. Um, and that's why things like run, run long. Um, I think also just people are very unrealistic about how long things take. And so they'll say like, oh yeah, I'll have this done in a month. And like five months later, they're still working on it. Um, so, yeah. So we can blame management. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I, I think to some degree, yeah. I mean, like if a, if a company is continually producing something uh, and it takes way longer than they say it's going to, then it's management's responsibility to own up to that and say like, yes, that's our fault. Like we're not running the company well if we are constantly a year late or two years late or something like that. Like that is absolutely their fault. Can I provide a bit of a counterpoint? Like, I kind of think it's also on us too. Like, don't get me wrong. Management is the one who has power in the situation. They control the finances. They can definitely fix these things if they want to, assuming it's a stable company. Um, but it's also on us too, like the workers. Like, we need to be able to advocate for ourselves and not just hope that management fix things. And that's why we have to organize to build the actual power so that way we're not just hoping they do the right thing. We, like, can force them to do that. And I'm definitely yeah, that's that's a very good point. Yeah, that is a really good point. Um, I just think there's like a real dialectic kind of tension between that, where like we're pushing for worker agency, but there is a reality of like managers have the power, but like we can't use that as a cop out of like, well, everything's bad and that's the manager's fault. Well, maybe we could get together and fix that shit. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe there's a, a distinction between like, um, the people who are, are capable of doing it versus the people who are responsible for, for the outcome of it. That's good. Yeah, I like that. Oh, I'm so not going to qualify on so any I, of these matches. I guess we haven't really, we haven't really explained uh, much of this. Um, is we're, we're trying, Austin is so far the only one who's really been able to, to qualify for any round. So we've watched a bit of Austin playing, but, you know, I think... Um, one of the things that we were talking about uh, when we were testing this out is it's it's quite hard to know who else is in the game um, because you have randomized names. So I was trying to look for you two while we were playing uh, and it's, it's pretty difficult. And I think, Austin, were you saying it's just because people were having such toxic names that they, they took it away? Yeah, so originally they had... Uh, real names in here and or not real names but like you know whatever names you could pick and i believe that that uh they had a bunch of toxic names and so very very shortly after the game launched and, and became hyper successful they changed it so that it just says like fall guy one fall guy two fall guy 20 you get four numbers don't you so i was like oh. fingers crossed i get 1917 but no i get some random random collection of numbers <laughs> oh my god am i gonna qualify no <laughs> i was literally a foot away from the end <laughs> oh, oh my no. god <laughs> oh my lord did you qualify jamie oh, I, I either qualified or i forgot to play and didn't get to the end uh I'm so heartbroken. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god, I'm actually doing it. It's like right in front of me. The line's right there. And then just nope, done. Bezos. 
Um, so maybe it's a good opportunity to ask you a little bit more then about uh, what's been happening in the US kind of since GDC over the last couple of years. Like, like where's the organizing gone? Yeah, great question. I mean, so... Cool. Can do. Um, yeah. So, I mean, right after GDC, I mean, immediately kind of the, the next things that happened were people dispersed back out to their cities and regions and studios and started organizing local chapters um, of Game Workers Unite and, um, you know, trying to just build the framework of like some core education and community building that could actually be with good organizing, um, you know, mapping and research about the, the industry in the areas. Really um, that had like you know mixed success, I think, but there were a number of things that happened at that time. I and, and a whole number of things that are never in the press. I think, like, I actually can't tell you just how many like direct actions and collective actions that resulted in real meaningful improvements happened at studios, at least that I'm aware of, and I'm sure there were more that nobody talks about. It was never a public thing. They just happened, and they were a success just to the people involved, right? Um, and so there was actually quite a lot going on when I was on Twitter. Um, and, you know, at some point last year, a number of us from North America, uh, in the United States, we uh, visited a couple of Meetings, like big, like national conventions, essentially for some of the thought like good fix. Um, one of the results of that was um, myself and a number of others became much more close in organizing with uh, communication workers of America. We'd already had relationships, but good. Uh, and one of the results is we were able to spin up the Code CWA campaign, which is essentially. The communication workers initiative to organize the tech games and digital industries um, in North America. And pretty much ever since last November, we've just had tons of staff, volunteers, uh, CWA members helping to undergird that and, and help with organizing. And we have a number of campaigns that really places that range as wild as like worker co-ops to um, small independent studios to play. To everywhere in between outsourcing form firms, um, outsourcing forms. Wow, my uh, my Midwestern crappy accent. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's kind of a lot going on now in that way. There's a lot of legitimate, serious union organizing, actually driving towards recognition, contracts, and collective bargaining and stuff like that. And. I guess my kind of, I mean, I've got so many questions that I'd like to follow up on uh, with that. And I think there's a real thing about, we often hear about the things that aren't successful yeah, rather than the things where people win because they win and then they move on and, you know, they've kind of, they've kind of done it. It doesn't make as good of a story usually. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So why in the US, uh, why CWA, what's, you know, what were the kind of choices about where to go and, yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a handful of kind of options in front of us, you know, groups like OPEIU, which is kind of like a office workers, mostly clerical union, um, white collar staff. Um, there's IOTSI, which is like a um, film and entertainment union, uh, which 
I, I really like my auntie and really good organizing relationships with them very early on. Um, and then CWA. And for me, I mean, I spent two years thinking about this question and really like talking to every single member, official, leader, staff, person from all these units. And CWA was just like the extremely obvious choice reasons for me um, and for other folks. And I think that boils down to a few things. One, TWA organizes and has organized for decades. Workers ranging from telecom, tech, engineering, software, communications, media, you name it. Like mm. a really good range of things, which covers actually a lot of what is in the games industry. Again, you know, the diversity of skill sets, disciplines, and I really think TWA is a natural for that. Um, but also beyond that, like, first off, it's one of the largest in the United States. I don't say that like handedly, like the locals have like, <laughs> and I've seen this a little bit firsthand, the locals tend to have so much power and autonomy and like role of their own affairs that like sometimes you can get into these real slug fests at the conventions and stuff because like really behind it. Like when I went to the convention, like it wasn't people in like suits and nice business attire, which I've seen at other union national conventions. It was like people in jeans and polos and t-shirts. They printed shit on saying like, Hey, vote for whatever proposal. And yeah. Yeah. Guy. And like, and there were people in nice, you know, office clothes and, and, and suits here and there. But when I walked in, the crowd was so diverse and so clearly people that I would have just like grown up with in the Midwest and like, I would have known. And like, I, I just felt like, ah, this is the working class. This is like my home. This is like the people I care about. And I, it was just so peaceful for me. And, and as you that becomes Oh, you lost my audio? I think whenever the, the game has a lot of sounds, uh, your audio cuts out a little. Oh, okay. It, yeah, the game is intervening to stop you talking about the, the Midwest working class. <laughs> oh, don't get me started with post-industrial America. Um, can you hear me again? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. I will just like turn Steam all the way down and play silent. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that that makes a lot of sense of why why to why to join a, an an organization like that. I mean, I guess you know, although we've kind of had this thing about you can't really discuss successes sometimes because they kind of move on. Like, have there been any moments that you can talk about that kind of give a sense of where things are up to in the U.S.? Yeah, totally. I mean, um, obviously there there's all kinds of stuff like the you know the riot walkout around first arbitration and, and the improvements they were able to make, you know, the Activision Blizzard stuff, tons of things I can't really speak to presently. Um, there's also the Voltage Game Writers Strike, um, which if people aren't familiar, um, at CodeCWA, we were uh, working with these uh, video game writers who work on a, like, um, a, a mobile uh, narrative game and, uh, you know, actually one of the most popular in the entire genre. Um, 
And they came to us, you know, talking about how they had severely, <laughs> like, just incredibly unequal conditions compared to writers in the rest of the industry and writing in general. Um, predominantly, I think a lot of it is because, well, one, working in games typically means you get paid less than the same skill in any other industry. Mm-hmm. And then the vast majority of, you know, actually all of all of the writers were some combination of uh, women, non-binary folks, LGBTQ, people of color, on and on and on. And so all of those things really boiled down to like, they were making three cents of words on average when the average is actually six to eight cents a word, like which is like a 50% pay discrimination at best. At okay. best, that's what it is. Um, so they reached out to us for early on. We helped them kind of come together and organize and chart out their workplace. And eventually like, you know, it built towards a 100% participation strike that lasted for three weeks. Um, there was a quite a bit of attention, especially partway into it. And, you know, the player base came out in droves in support of the workers. Um, even though at the end, the company was trying to frame it as like, we're so sorry to all the players for this inconvenience. And, we're going to get back to making the games you love. And like all the comments are just like fans being like, yo, shut the fuck up. Like just pay your workers. Like we don't care. Like delay it for six months. I just pay your people, please. Um, <laughs> which I think was really sweet. The the fan outpouring was just so positive. So a hundred percent across the board positive. I didn't even see a single negative comment. Um, and they ended up, you know, ultimately making some real gains. Um, on average, they got a 78% pay increase some as high as like 90 something, some as low as 60 something. Um, and, you know, uh, in, increases to, or like improvements on like transparency and the ways uh, things were scheduled. There is the reality of the situation, which is that even when you make wins uh, through organizing, at the end of the day, again, the boss, their first motivation is, is profit and to, you know, hit the bottom line. And, uh, so they continue to chip away at those wins, even once you've made them. So now they're kind of in this process of like having to defend the things they've won and stick up for each other and make sure they essentially give no quarter to, uh, you know, the company and being able to strip away the things they won. But I think it's really phenomenal. I think it's, I think it's a great example um, of organizing and I'm not at all surprised that what I think or at least seem to know is the first game worker strike that has ever succeeded, you know, beyond the voice actors. Um, it's arguably, I think because one, they're kind of on the margins of the industry, they're not triple a game devs. They're like people that no one, the press ever cares about or focuses on. They're people who, you know, players don't tend to think of when you think of a game developer. And actually the bulk of the industry is that. The bulk of the industry works in mobile games. The bulk of the industry works in outsourcing and support support firms. Um, that's actually where the industry is. So I'm not surprised when you look at the political economy that that's where organizing really took off in an effective way. Mm-hmm. And I also think being from marginalized backgrounds, um, I think really fed into the notion that they knew they were going to have to fight if they could get anything out of this. And they weren't willing to give into the notion that maybe if we just ask nice enough, things will work out, you know? Definitely. Definitely. And I feel like we should ask Austin about what has happened in the UK so that maybe you (laughs) and I can get a slight advantage in this round, Emma. 
Um, That's fine. Because it is possible for, for us oh to get God. through to the second round as well. Although not <laughs> not not like this. Are you sure about this? Guys. <laughs> what the? Oh, my well, God. I'm getting wrecked right now. Back so, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. Uh, sorry. Go ahead, Jamie. Yeah, yeah. No, I was just going to say we need to distract you now, Austin. So, what's been happening? Um, so, uh, I would say it, the UK kind of started shortly after. Um, the the big 2018 kind of event with uh at, at the game developers conference and um like i said the the first kind of big meeting in london was uh august of that year um we had a, a number of other meetings uh and then eventually ended up um forming as a branch of uh, a union the independent workers of great britain and uh, I guess maybe it's it's good to clarify a little bit, kind of the the slight differences um, in unions between the UK and, and the US. So in the UK, uh, unions um, are are uh, unattached from workplaces, and you can join, um, or often unattached, uh, and so you can join a union even if you don't have recognition at your workplace. And so in the UK, it was much easier to. Um, to kind of decide to join up with a union and form a branch. Uh, and then all over the UK, uh, we had members kind of join up from tons of different companies um, to, to form the branch. So um, what we've been doing over the last, I guess, almost two years now is uh, it's kind of expanding on the branch um, recruitment, uh, helping out members who, who are in the branch um, with legal casework. So we've had um, 32 cases with our um, with our legal department um, and won over a hundred thousand pounds for our members. Um, but uh, and and so what we're doing now is we're basically trying to uh, I guess organize uh, focus on kind of individual workplaces and um, and more work towards uh, towards the, the collective bargaining agreements that, that we can get by having large amounts of, of um, workers as members at the workplaces. Was that you getting disqualified, Emma? Yeah, of course it was. <laughs> I, I think I squeaked, like squeaked past in that one. <sighs> well, I didn't even make it past the first one, so y'all beat me. I was the last person to qualify in the first one. And yeah, that probably didn't bode well for the second round. <laughs> Um, so Austin, in terms of, so that's the kind of like getting the basic trade unionism happening, like defending people, winning cases and so on. Like, what do you think has changed in terms of like the organizing more, re like how are things developing? Um, where, what do you think is kind of coming next, I guess? Yeah. So that's a good question. I'd, I'd say when we first started, kind of the, the big thing was that as a whole, the industry didn't really know that much about unions. Um, and so a lot of what we were doing was just kind of education of, um, you know, like this is the basics of a union, like in the UK, you know, you don't just the, 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 like, you don't have to tell your employer that you're in a union. They're not allowed to ask that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, what we're doing now is, is like, uh, which is, 
kind of neat is that whenever someone has an issue and, and, you know, there's kind of community groups, uh, oftentimes the first thing that they will do, uh, that I've seen people do is like, Hey, have you talked to the people at the union, um, uh, about your issue? And, and so like, it's, it's really changed the, um, the way that people think of the industry as, as like, um, as, as things that they can do, uh, do to kind of like help improve the working conditions. Um, and one thing that we're trying to do now is, is basically uh, change people's minds even further from like, oh, this is a reactionary thing that the union can help with to no, we can be proactive with this kind of stuff. Um, we can improve work, workplace conditions um, at individual workplaces before things go bad um, or uh, respond to kind of like uh, issues that have been there for a long period of time. So like the systemic crunch that we talked about earlier or, um, you know, some of the harassment that that the industry uh, had a lot of articles written about and, and was publicized uh, earlier this year and the previous year. So it's it's more kind of um, I don't know, like it, it is formalized in people's brains that that a union is is the thing that like can help them. But I don't think that uh, the industry as a whole has really understood like kind of the the stepping stones of like okay, now that we have a union, what's kind of the next step? Like how do we uh, how do we take that and and like get our workplaces to get collective bargaining agreements to like push to make changes at the companies, that kind of stuff. So those are the kind of steps that we're taking next. Mm. So I think we have time for one more round of full guys, and then we're going to take it to Q and a. So if people have any questions, please do start, you know, if you have questions for, for Emma or Austin or, or, or challenges for how badly my full guys was, uh, you know, please do, please do send them in. Um, and I think, you know, I think there's a lot that we could kind of, you know, I think what I found so kind of fascinating is seeing this kind of go from the things that happen at GDC to the formation of different kinds of unions and branches kind of following things along and seeing, yeah, seeing the progress along the way. And I think, you know, what are we now two years after? maybe longer from that GDC? Uh, almost going on three, actually. Yeah. Early next year, it'll be three. I, I've completely lost like any sense of calendar time mm-hmm. at the moment. It's like it's sometime in 2020. But yeah, I guess it must be... Yeah, because it would, would it be March 2021 would be three years? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. Like, I, I think kind of one of the things that that for us in the UK at least for me is that it took so much work to kind of get up to the point where we formed a branch of a union you know tons of different meetings figuring out a constitution and and like you know the the fee structure and like basically everything about a branch and then figuring out how to like run the branch and and you know how to involve members and everything like that and like it's just been like I never thought like in, in my brain because I was so inexperienced. I was like, oh yeah, we'll have like a, a significant portion of the industry <laughs> unionized in in like a couple of years or something like that. And then now that I'm like two years into it, I'm like, oh my God, this is like a monumental task. But like also at the same time, like I can see so much progress being made. Um, and so I think my initially I was like, oh yeah, this is gonna be a couple of years and we're gonna have like huge wins. 
Um, <laughs> and now I can see, <laughs> see, it's, it's much longer term than that, but I can also see that, that like, it's going to be pretty significant. Like we're going to have huge, huge steps along the way that are just going to be um, monumental and fantastic. I feel like it's kind of interesting, the dichotomy between like union legality and kind of culture in the UK versus the United States, because like, um, wow, I'm about to get killed. Um, you know, I think there's something about having less protections in the United States. That's kind of interesting in that the only way to join the union, like you can't join as like a, I want to pay dues and I sign up and boom, now I'm in the union. The only way to actually do it is to like engage in class struggle and like actually organize your shop in total um, because you have to like win an election or get recognition and force it as a majority. Um, and there's something about that that I think crafts also, wow, I'm super dead, but um, yeah. Anyway, it's kind of, a, it's a different culture around the unionism. I think that's more oriented on um, not membership, but like struggle. And it's just odd. I think that's a really interesting point because I think what I always find so like different about the game worker stuff is you have a kind of massive, well, not massive, but you have a large number of people who find each other through this conference online in different countries who want a union in the games industry or want unions in the games industry, but they're, they're kind of starting from outside the workplace and then trying to figure out how to go into the workplace, which is kind of, you know, for lots of people, that's a back to front way, I guess. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of funny um, in that way. And it, it, it also kind of reminds me of just like <sighs> over the past two years, like so many people have been like, wow, this is great. We're so excited by all the work that you and like other organizers are doing. And like, I can't wait to have a union. And it's like, that's not how anything works. I don't do shit. Like I advise people, I train people how to organize. I can provide all kinds of education. I've been there before so I can like help you, but it's you and your coworkers who need to organize. It's you and your coworkers who need to take up the slack and build something out of nothing and build that community and structure and support. That's what union organizing is. It's not, you don't get to check off a box on your dues form and be like, boom, boom, boom. Now I'm in it and we have a union and that's, it um you know it, the it, the primary thing about union organizing is building class consciousness right and the primary thing that is understanding your own power and value as a collective and you know and your weakness as individuals and actually having the agency to move on that and to to shape your workplace with that understanding and until people do that you will not have a union it doesn't matter if you support whatever union organizing project there is or a campaign or game workers united or whatever your thing is it doesn't matter it means kind of nothing unless you yourself are organizing with your coworkers. and it's a thing that i think genuinely every single person can do i know it for a fact because literally nobody on the voltage game writer organ organizing campaign had ever organized before most were scared they had concerns they didn't know how to do it they had to get trained they took practice they weren't perfect out of the gate they messed up but they kept going and they learned how to do it. And now they're killer. They're amazing organizers. And the, the bond and solidarity they've like built with each other is like just steel, right? They've just like forged such a thing. Um, 
Yeah. And so I think there's no passive supporting in the industry. And anyway, it's a, a tangent. Sometimes I go on and you kind of jog my memory about it. <laughs> but I think it's a really important one, that difference of like, you know, working class power and a union. Yeah. Um, you know, union is an institution. Um, and, you know, there are many issues with unions in the UK of that similar model of, you know, you join one of these large unions, you pay your dues, you're not expected to participate in anything. Um, mm. And that doesn't build your power at work. Right. Because um, your power you know, isn't in legal protections. It's in the fact that you and your coworkers make absolutely every single ounce of profit and value and quality that your company has. And if you withhold that, that's a hell of a lot of power. <laughs> that is like severe economic leverage. And we know companies don't make decisions based off of like, you know, fluffy social logic and morals. They're moved by finances. And that's not even necessarily a judgment value. That's just reality. So our greatest power is in our economic leverage we can have collectively. So if you're not doing that, if you're not building that, you can't try, really accomplish like the significant overhauls of the balance of power you we you and your coworkers and everyone in the industry needs for the sake of the medium and for the sake of the people who actually make it. And I'm 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 sure I've told Austin this story so many times, so I'm sorry, Austin, but for everyone <laughs> else, it might be might be a new one. Um, is when I had the ideas about writing uh, Marks at the Arcade, I uh, I went to a game studies conference. Um, and talk to some people because I was like, I want, I want to figure out a bit more about, you know, what other research has been done. Um, and I remember this this really senior, uh, like game studies professor came and talked to me, and he said, you know, Jamie, the problem with with you Marxists <laughs> is you see you see capital and labor everywhere. And he said, so when you look at the games industry, you see capital and labor. Uh, what you don't understand is it's not it's not like that in the games industry. Um, <laughs> And, you know, it's just because you're a Marxist that you see the, these things. And he said, you know, there, there, there won't be unions that, 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 that grow. There won't be these things because, you know, this I used to work in this industry and this industry is different and so on. And so the book in lots of ways, you know, was a two fingers up to be like, see, you know, <laughs> even yeah. if, you know, even if, you don't have to be a Marxist to see capital and labor in the video games industry. Like people are starting to see how those things work in practice. Right. It's not unique. It's not you know, di a different industry that these things don't work in. It's so uh, but it was a satisfaction, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's funny. It, like, it's such a liberal conception of the world and that like, like companies are a thing and workers are a thing and bosses are a thing and unions are a thing. And sometimes they just exist. And like, sometimes you don't need one of them. And like, in reality, like unions are not their own third party independent things. It's you and your coworkers in struggle. And People will always engage in struggle in the workplace, in the community, you know, nationally, internationally, so long as there's oppression, so long as you don't control things, so long as you don't have a voice or power to actually impact the world, people mm -hmm. will always push back. And whether you call it a union or a group or a workers' council or whatever, it's still going to be the same damn thing that's pushing back on that oppression. And even if it's relatively light oppression like we have in the, United, the, the games industry in the U.S., like... It still should happen because people deserve to have a voice and a say. A third of our lives or more are spent at work, and it's the most undemocratic, dictatorial, top-down like structure you can possibly think of. Like it just is. But we like praise democracy all day long in the United States. But the thing that matters most to me is not who's in the White House and shit. 
it's like the person who's impacting my day to day who decides whether or not my family can put food on the table or pay rent or, you know, have a decent career. And so I'm going off on a total tangent, but like the point is like unions aren't a thing you get to choose about. So long as there's that dichotomy where like a small number of people who are wealthy control everything about your company in reality, then the masses of people below them who don't have that voice and agency will always be wanting more of that. Always. It might take time for them to realize it. It might take time for people to move on that idea, but they will always realize it. People said the same shit about um, the steel industry. It will never organize. The workers are too well conditioned and you know the, the industry is too monopolistic and they have all these new production processes. You'll never organize steel. The labor movement thought it. The workers thought it. The capitalists thought it. The politicians thought it. And yet, at some point, a few people got together and were like, screw this. We need to organize this. It's so important. It's the future of the industrial economy, steel. And then they went and did it because they had the guts to do it, right? And I think it's the exact same thing in tech, the exact same thing in games. Just history bears this out time and time again, just endlessly. I think that's a really, really good point to, to move on to the Q&A. Um, because, you know, I always think about this, like, you know, you might not be interested in class struggle, but class struggle is interested in you, you know, it doesn't care if you're engaged, (laughs) doesn't care if you've decided that like unions are not for you or the industry is too new or whatever. And this reminds me of a point that I always try and make when talking about this stuff of there's always been resistance in the games industry. Mm, You know, there's always been people who didn't want to be talked to that way by their boss or tried to change things or, you know, probably lots of times did it individually and not yeah. in a group, you know, so that resistance is always there. not being credited, like putting their credits into games as Easter eggs because they weren't allowed to have credits. Perfect example. Um, so we're going to move to do uh, some questions to kind of, you know, now we're not quite so distracted by, by full guys. And uh, well done, Austin, for, for being the standout, <laughs> the standout winner of, of, of our, well, we didn't call it a competition. So, you know, we all won, perhaps. We're all um, winners, even though we lost. Yes. Um, so we've had a few come in, but if you have any other questions or things you'd like to get discussed, please do uh, do put them in. We've had a few that have come in around um, game production and kind of specifics about the industry. Um, one of them is, uh, what has uh, your experience been with developer contracts and their duration? Um, so they're, they're saying, for example, between the length of game versus permanent ones and how that affects working conditions or organizing. So job tenure, I guess. Do you want to handle that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think it depends on the, uh, this is a, a, a complicated question because it really depends on the type of company. Um, so like AAA or, or not even AAA, but like super large companies like EA or Ubisoft or Rockstar versus Indies. Um, and then also couples with uh, whatever stage the project is in. So if it's in pre-production, prototype or production or, um, you know, kind of like a maintenance mode. Uh, so it, it, it kind of 
combines with those. But I would say that for larger companies, oftentimes they do try and um, on the games themselves, try and uh, hire as like full-time employees. Um, and uh, contractors are often used as like, oh crap, we need this work done and we need it done in the next two months. Um, and so they're kind of like stopgap filled. Uh, there's also types of work that is often um, contractor related because it is not necessarily needed for the entire um, production of, of a game. So like uh, localization is often a, a, a very contract based thing because uh, it kind of comes towards the end of the game. Um, so it, it really depends is, is the answer. But uh, I think um, for a lot of staff, maybe like the the people who have been working on the game throughout the entire life cycle of it, uh, they're oftentimes the full-time employees and then um, they're augmented with uh, uh, contract staff. Now this is this is true for like kind of the the people who directly work on games. Um, but there's also kind of the the support staff. So there's there are companies that are dedicated QA and oftentimes they will have, um, contract like solely contract with with the QA staff. Um, so the companies will contract out to the the QA uh, companies and and uh, and use them that way. So the the direct games um, are full time employees, and then kind of everyone surrounding them is often contract. To answer that question, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think. You know, this stuff, often this stuff matters for how secure people feel at different points or, you know, if localization happens at a certain stage, when those people could take action is going to be shaped by the kinds of deadlines they they might be working around, I guess. Um, but we also had, um, we had a, a devil's advocate question, uh, but it's from a friend of mine. So, so hi, Joanna, um, who said... Uh, in terms of thinking, when we were talking a bit about is it manager's fault that crunch happens or, you know, is it workers' responsibility to stop it from happening? Or like, what, how does it come into being? Uh, it says, how to counter these things? Um, you know, is it that you can't accurately predict how long a game will take to be made? Um, so I've heard these arguments before around uh, kind of software development more broadly of like, how do you measure software development? It's like quite a, a challenging thing. Um, and B, is it that hiring more people just also makes more work because you have to coordinate them, you have to onboard them. There's not just a question of bringing more people onto the project wouldn't mean that people would work less. So a bit of devil's advocate around crunch, what do we, what do we think? Oh, I, I completely think neither of those are relevant. Um, in that, you know, Yes, you cannot accurately predict everything all the time. As a project manager, I'll tell you better than anybody that that is absolutely the case. The problem with that is, okay, there's no reason to have arbitrary forced decisions based off of we just happen to have to have it done by this arbitrary date. If it's just clearly going to take more time and that becomes the reality, extend the time or estimate much better, which no one ever does in the industry at this point, at least that I've seen, which is like, theoretically, you're supposed to be like, we think it's going to take this much time. Let's multiply that by 1.5. But like, people don't want to do that because last time, well, we did crunch it into X amount of time. So this time we're just going to book that ahead of time and then we're going to crunch it even harder, right? It's like a slippery slope the other way, actually. 
Um, the other thing with like hiring more people, it does create more work, but not more work than uh, you're relieving because one coordinator, one production coordinator or what have you can easily work with like 10, 15 people. So you're paying for one more person to manage a whole lot of other people to be way more effective, way more uh, efficient in their work as a collective. So it just, it's not like some kind of exponential runaway cost. It's, it's actually not that big, I would argue. Um, yeah. And the other thing is like, yeah, I, I think you don't have to necessarily hire people. I think the main thing is really let it take more time. Yeah. I, I think that, that there are ways that you can kind of mitigate um, the, the production issues, um, uh, basically like build in the buffer time, like Emma said, like the 1.5 time or, um, just have contingency plans is, is really another big one of like, okay, so what happens if, if this takes longer than we think it's going to, what are we going to do then? Um, and oftentimes companies don't even do that. They'll say, literally, we have to make it by this, this time. Otherwise, you know, we're all going to be screwed. And so therefore the, like, they don't come up with contingency plans and therefore like company, like the, the workers feel stressed when they can't hit that and they know they're not going to hit it. Um, so it's just kind of like lying to themselves and then saying, we have to fit this lie. Um, and it, it, yeah, for, for the, the, like hiring other people on, um, definitely like as a long-term thing, it, it's absolutely something that can be done. Um, oftentimes what I have seen, however, is like they don't hire those extra people until right near the end when, when they realize like they're really not going to make it. And then, so they, they maybe add a couple people on and there, um, there's a, a famous book called the mythical man month, which basically says like, you can't add people to the end of a project and expect them to like ramp up right away and, and, uh, and be effective. Like it, it takes, you know, three to six months to become really effective on a team. So. Uh, I have seen like people throw uh, other people onto a project near the end of it. And it, it's just a disaster because like they don't know what they're doing. Like they don't know the processes of the team. Um, and so in, in that sense, like adding people early on. Great. Absolutely. Please do that. Um, adding people like right at the tail end. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and the problem with that is like, our companies are so often re reactive instead of proactive. They want to respond to, oh, okay, actually we really do need to invest in having more people. You know, it's just becoming a crisis and they like want to throw something at it like a band-aid, but it's not, it's structural. And to your point, like fix it ahead of time, be preventative yeah. in the way in which you design your company. Okay. So we've, uh, yeah, we've definitely engaged with those devil's advocate questions. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that was the kind of debate that they were hoping for. Um, we've got another one, which I think, uh, also brings up a couple of things that we've touched on kind of briefly at various points, which, um, somebody asks, it, it's usually just dismissed or, or used as an insult, but the far right has used games and games culture to recruit to their cause. Um, is it possible for the left to do the same or uh, is it just hopelessly right wing out there? I I think that's maybe a little bit of a leading question. I think that um, it might be. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm being being kind here. Um, I think that there absolutely is parts of the far right that 
recruit in video games, um, including like the American military uh, is recently recruiting um, using video games and Twitch. Um, but however, I would say a vast portion of the um, game workers themselves are, are pretty significant to the left um, and, uh, and are willing to, uh, if pushed and taught, um, are willing to, to try and, and well, what's a good way to put this, um, to advocate and, and work towards the things that, that I think would improve the world. I have opinions. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> I think the biggest problem with this entire framing of the question and conception of like solutions to problems that I don't think are problems is that so often the right is not engaging people into active work. In, in that I mean like they're creating a culture, they're creating a rhetoric, they're creating like a mentality and they suck people into the forums and games and communities and blah, 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 um, with their kind of worldview. The, the difference is we don't want to do that. I want to move people out their workplace. I want to build community structures. I want to like build structure that aids in the working classes having power and actually agency. And that takes a ton of work. And I, I don't think, you know, I don't think it's a matter of like social recruitment through, you know, mediums like this. Um, I think it's a part of it. And like, obviously we're sitting here playing this because, you know, it is, it's fun and it is a thing that draws people in, but um, I don't think that's the solution. I think the solution is getting off our asses and talking to our coworkers for once about the things that really matter and actually building that stuff. IRL um, not to sound like a grandma, but um yeah, I feel like it's 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 like it's almost irrelevant to me in the way that I think about it. Um, you know, I think it can play a role, but I don't think it's like some existential problem for the left. I think the left in the West is just really fucking lazy more than anything else. Like the the left in the West is pathetic. We're so weak. We don't want to do real struggle. We like to talk and talk and read and read, but we don't get out there and put that theory to practice. That's the actual problem problem that we like would much rather divide ourselves into like 60 different camps of hyper nuanced, ridiculous sectarian groups than actually be like, Hey, person in my apartment building, let's organize a tenants union because fuck the guy who's like driving this property into the ground. Right. That's the actual problem. So to me, it's definitely not a recruitment issue because I, I mean, I'll also tell you, like I've seen people who are essentially like proto fascists in the games industry flip completely 180 after you get them into union organizing and literally a year later they have like a really solid class analysis and they see things totally differently but you don't change them by engaging in debate you don't change them by you know sneaking them into a, a games community where it's like you just start hearing all this marxist shit like you change them by you know forgetting the politics leaving it at the door and being like hey man you me our coworkers everyone around us has x y and z problems we need to fix it and the only way we're going to do that is if we have the power and voice that is necessary to make that change and if you can move them on that and if you can get them pushing against boundaries if they can start testing the power structure at work if they can start organizing with their coworkers that engaging in the class struggle will teach them everything you're wanting to lecture and culture people into being right. I, I think there's nothing better than actually doing the organizing and class struggle to, to, to change people's politics. 
And yeah, don't get me wrong. Like there's a political motivation definitely behind a lot of the work I do, but lecturing people about it doesn't mean anything and building. I don't think gaming culture around leftist stuff is the answer either. I think it's just a cute thing that is a part of the general flourishing around this kind of new culture, if that makes sense. I think that I think that makes a lot of sense, and it yeah, it strikes me that maybe like Twitter is too much of a focus for some people than <laughs> you know talking to people talking to people at work. But I, I'm going to play the tiniest bit of devil's advocate <laughs> here because I mean I agree with you, you know I agree with you. I'm you know I'm a you know I'm a union member. I organize at work. You know these are things that I think are really important to do. But I also think the left should be able to say things about culture. Mm. Oh, totally. Um, you know, and I think one of the the things that really struck me is, you know, I grew up playing video games, you know, and then I became, you know, a Marxist, got involved in organizing, and those two worlds seem to be completely different. You know, they kind of separate out. And I think um, being able to to intervene in culture and talk about culture is not the only thing we should be doing, but it's kind of remarkable how little at least like the established left kind of thinks the video games are this like weird diversion, like maybe a child's toy, maybe not. There's this kind of, you know, a sense that this is like not really a thing that deserves talking about, um, which I feel has changed. You know, there is, you know, I think because of organizing around it, you know, it now feels like a topic that is worth talking about maybe. Um, But yes, we're certainly not going to win people to revolutionary politics by, you know, playing papers please or something you know right um okay so we've got a couple more questions we've got 10 minutes left um so if you have any other burning questions i have a couple of final questions that i'm going to ask just to to round things up um but one of them i mean i know we've talked about this a bit austin um is what what do you make of you know uh of indie game developers uh, or people who are involved in games but might not have a formal job and how they fit into the kind of organizing that we've been discussing. Um, and it might just be worth for people who are a bit less familiar, just giving a quick sense of like what indie work patterns are like maybe. Yeah, I guess like, um, and maybe specifically you're talking about people who are are doing this as like side projects type stuff. Uh, is is that kind of what you're referring to, or is this question from someone else? This question came from someone else. Um, gotcha. So indie okay. game devs, more broadly, I think. Yeah. Um, so indie game devs are oftentimes thought of as as kind of like smaller operations. So I mean, there's tons of controversy on like the actual definition of this. So please do not take this as as like <laughs> the the actual definition. But uh, you know, smallish groups of of people, one to you know, 30 to 50 people or something like that can often be uh, thought of as indie devs. Um, and uh, oftentimes they can have different dynamics than than kind of the larger developers. Um, and so when people first start, you know, a, a, an indie studio, oftentimes like it's, it's like their pet project and they really want it to succeed. And so the... Um, there's kind of pressure to to uh, 
to make make the game that they want to make and also make it under budget and make sure that the company is successful and everything like that. And so I, I oftentimes can see indie devs, you know, reaching for crunch as like a solution to those problems where they're not able to kind of turn off work and um, and kind of go about their normal lives. It's it's like all work all the time. Um, and so that, um, I, I think that that can be dangerous at, at times, uh, just because people are so invested that they, um, they essentially don't, don't want to like, uh, take care of themselves, uh, while they're working. Yeah. Anything you wanted to add to that, Emma? I think it's, it's really worth noting to kind of pull out something Austin was talking about, which is really like, I don't think the term indie dev is helpful or useful because in the category of indie dev, which is big and broad, you have small business owners who control the fate of their workers. You have people in worker co-ops who are egalitarian deciding how the companies run. You have workers who are employed by small business owners. These are very different experiences. And you have single contributor type people who are just making their own thing with like a buddy, right? So I think we need to parse these things out. There are workers in the indie game scene that need to be organized and deserve to be organized because if you're employed by someone, you deserve to have a group uh, to, to be with in protection and to advocate for ourselves. So I think that's, that's the main thing I'd want to highlight. And I think just on the subject of worker co-ops, cause it's kind of related cause they tend to come only in the indie scene, at least so far. Um, I think they're part of the labor movement. They've like gone past the main hurdle of most of unionized labor, but there's a role for them in the movement. And I, and I think union co-ops are actually really an interesting and powerful concept and something that maybe in the future we can uh, revisit because <laughs> there's like some things we're working on. But um, yeah, I think we should see those things as connected. Um and indie, the indie scene is not irrelevant to organizing it. I think it's important. In fact, some of the worst exploitation I've ever seen was at small independent studios. So yeah, for sure. Like some of the the companies that we've been dealing with in the UK, uh, indie ones tend to be uh, a lot more questionable oftentimes because they don't have like the HR structures. They don't have the like quality of life things that the larger companies have been doing for the last 10 plus years or something like that. Um, so yeah, they, uh, they're definitely some of the, the bigger issue ones that, that we've had to deal with. And people are much more exposed. You yeah. know, if yeah. you work for a company with five people, you know, if you send a, an open letter, everyone's going to know it's you, you know, <laughs> kind of, <laughs> much harder to like, you know, to do those things, I think. Um, okay. So I had a, a final question for, for each of you just before we, we wrap up at half past, um, which is a kind of two part question, um, which is, you know, what do you think, like, what do you think the main uh, kind of learning has been from this kind of wave of, of game worker organizing and what do you think other groups of workers can learn from this? Um, so like, what have you, you know, what, what's been learned along the way and what would you share with other people? Which is a big question I realized. So I thought I'd leave it for while we weren't playing full guys. <laughs> uh, maybe I can take a stab and then Emma, yeah, you sure. can follow up. Sure. I think the big thing for me is that, 
um, people in the games industry need to understand that there is no change at their workplace unless they involve their own like work, unless they get involved themselves. Um, oftentimes I kind of hear people say like, oh, hey, there's a union. Great. I've joined it. Good, good job. Like you're doing everything. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like we need to, yeah, exactly. The, the, the check mark thing, like you need to get involved if you want to fundamentally change your own workplace. And if you don't, like it won't happen period. Like it'll just be the exact same stuff all the time. And I think that that is kind of like the, the big thing to try and change. I also think like as kind of an addition to that, I think a lot of workers can't see or, or haven't seen maybe like the, the future or the horizon of like how to get there. I think the, the like Val workers strike was like one of the, the first instances is like, holy shit, like we can do this and like get, get stuff out of it and like can kind of start to see the roadmap. And I think it'll get really, really huge once we start getting like the collective bargaining agreements um, and start getting like some of the wins out of it. Because I feel like that was similar with like the, the games press where they had like one happened and it was like, Oh, that was really cool. And then they had another one happen and another one. And it was like, Oh shit. And then there was just like a string of them. And I, I feel like that's going to happen in the games industry too. And Emma? Um, yeah, I'll try to touch on the first one first. In terms of like lessons learned, um, I think the number one thing is always, and this is like basic organizing, but the number one thing is like never make assumptions. And I mean about anything, about someone's politics, about what they've said about unions in the past, even if they say they're pro-union, you haven't talked to them yet about a union here at work, right? That's a different subject. It's not abstract, right? So I think people cannot assume when they're engaged in organizing and they really need to parse that. I think it, it's really easy to stumble on it. Related, I think, is also like the things people say do not matter at all. Don't give a shit about what people say. Give a shit about what people do. And that means on like all the people who talk and talk and talk on Twitter about changing the industry and making things better and blah, 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 who don't do shit. They don't matter. Stop paying attention to them. Stop thinking about them. It doesn't matter at all. Go and talk to your coworkers. Go and talk to the people you know in the industry. Build community. Build organization. Get people moving. That is the only thing that matters. What people say does not matter at all. I think something else, you know, perhaps worth pointing to is like, actually, yeah, I'll just I'll just end by like just highlighting what Austin said, right? I think we're making little steps into it, right? Like little by little, like the the conversation started happening. There's been little direct actions, um, you know, strikes, finally a strike that succeeds. You know, in Sweden, uh, Paradox workers now have a, a, a proper full shop union with a collective bargaining agreement. In France, there's like really good uh, progression on that front too. We're engaged in that kind of active organizing of a serious manner in South Korea. You have uh, two different unions at Nexon um, who uh, are really active and engaged in doing like proper full organizing. These things are happening. We're getting those handholds back on our industry. We're able to grab the wheel for the first time in decades as workers. And so I think it is possible. And I think the roadmap is becoming clearer for people. And, and I think the, the final thing I would say is like, 
if people can't see that roadmap, if they can't see that that kind of future that you see and that I see and Austin sees and Jamie sees and so many people see, if people can't see that around you, you're going to have to really learn how to suck it up and not become dissuaded by the fact that people don't see it. Because so many of us who want to organize, we're, we've been thinking about this. We've been reading about it, studying it. And we're like 100 steps of where our coworkers are, we're like way out in front. And the thing we have to do as organizers, especially if we're in an industry that's completely unorganized, is we have to back up all the way to where our coworkers are, meet them there, understand where they're at, take one step with them, bring them along, one step, bring them along, and you will get to the 100 steps in front. But you can't just talk your way to it. You have to bring them with you, right? And engage the issues they care about. And so I think that's the main thing. Like, it's really easy to get lost when you see that long, far off, you know, like vision of it. But you kind of have to let that be on the horizon and, and do the day to day that is not fun. It's not glamorous. It doesn't catch the press's attention and blah, blah, blah. It's not fun to talk about on Twitter um, that, you know, you and your buddy had to go meet up with someone at their house because, you know, the boss did something really terrible to them and you were all crying together that night. And that was the thing that had to be done for organizing. Right. Or when, um, you know, any number of things happen, those aren't like fun, splashy things. So I think for people who are in similar industries or in similar situations where there's a lot of disorganization, have the long-term view, but focus on this short-term day-to-day tactics that will actually get you to that goal that you're wanting and, and just have faith in that process. And more practically, also get trained. Like so many people in industries that are not organized try to just start randomly doing stuff without any proper training or advice from like seasoned organizers. Please, for the love of God, reach out to people, reach out to organizers who've done this before, whether or not they're in your industry. Um, I think that's the number one thing. People make so many easy little mistakes that could be easily avoided and make organizing so much more personal, human, and ineffective. So I think those would be the core things I would really want to touch on. Amazing. Thank you. Um, and as somebody looking from the outside in, um, you know, I think what I find so remarkable about all of it is the fact that it's, it shouldn't be remarkable is that it's not an unorganizable industry. Like we kind of remark on these things of like, Oh, well, this industry could never be organized. But like the steel worker stuff earlier yeah. It's like if video game workers can put in the time to organize, to, to do the things that you say, you know, so can workers in other sectors, but it means doing that actual organizing. Um, that is not a kind of magic, you know, a magic trick, but is putting in the work and so on. Yeah. Um, but that brings us that brings us to the end of end of the session. Um, and I just want to say I want to say a huge thank you to Austin and Emma. Uh, it's a real a real privilege to get to talk to people about organizing in the industry and to talk about Marxism and video games and embarrass ourselves playing full guys you know what a what a what a treat um and then finally just to say a huge thank you to haymarket for for supporting the talk for putting it on for sorting out numerous tech things behind the scenes um and thank you to everyone who tuned in uh to listen to us um you can buy marks at the arcade through haymarket you can see the organizations that, that emma and austin are involved in online uh, and you know listen to their advice you know go out and, and get organized um so thank you very much everyone and we'll yeah, hopefully hear about your stories soon. Thank you for hosting, Jamie. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget 
to check out haymarketbooks.org.